This is the story of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You can read along with me in your book. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the bullwhip crack like this. Let's begin now. Hey folks, welcome to a very special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this, we are continuing our reading of The Lost Ark. We are reading the story transcripts from the story sessions that were held by George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Lawrence Kasdan. If you missed the first part, this is not going to make any darn sense to you, so go on back and listen to the first part. You will hear Andrew Rausch as Steven Spielberg, Chris Dashu doing the lion's share of the work as George Lucas, and yours truly doing a horrible Lawrence Kasdan impersonation. It's trying to make it sound a little different from my own voice and not succeeding at all. I usually have these intros recorded well before the show goes out, but since the release of the first episode, I've gotten quite a bit of feedback, which is kind of nice. One of the listeners even called it cocaine for the ears, which is very surprising. And sounds a little dangerous. Also, I should say that there are some potentially insensitive words being thrown around here. Calling German people krauts. There's a lot of talk about Orientals and Arabs and things. So it was 1978, 79, something like that when this was happening. So got to put yourself back in the time. I should probably say too that as we were recording these, there was a lot of just kind of stopping and commenting on the reading as we were doing it. All of those have been cut out with maybe one exception in this episode. You'll hear that later. And if you come back tomorrow, you will hear more of our discussion about what we read and another special episode and come on back in a few more days and you'll hear part three where we wrap up our reading. There's still other parts of this series to go. And I hope you enjoy it. I have the answer. I had thought that on the scepter, on the part that he stole, is information about how tall the staff is. This thing sits on top of the staff and it says exactly how tall it is. How many hands high? No one has ever put it together before because nobody knew where the lost city was. They had fragments of information about how this was the staff that the mayor held, that the sun was the key to where the sun temple was or had a relation to the sun temple. But it isn't important if you don't know where the city is or anything. I thought it would be possible to develop the idea that he's discovering a lot of this stuff as he goes along. He's interpreting stuff and the puzzle sort of clicks together. Unless they all get the pieces, they can't really figure it out. Also, the interior of the hole has to be beveled in such a way that the sun only pierces it at a certain time. I was thinking that the Germans would be doing it mathematically and building models more or less reproducing what our guy has. They don't have some of the key information, so they're doing it sort of rough. They figure it out and it points to a building on the map. When he comes, they're in the process of digging at the building. In the process of the film, we get information that they found it, but they haven't. They're digging the wrong building. The reason is that the sun has changed so drastically in the 3,000 years or whatever that they didn't take that into calculation. If they were all bright people, they would have thought of that. But they're dumb. The Nazis and his partners weren't that well-versed in astronomy, and he was. He knew that the azimuth was wrong, and he moves the thing over. 
We see him digging in one spot while they're digging in another. Sort of one-upmanship, where our guy is brighter than they are. Maybe we can cover that by saying that the Germans thought it was from one period, say, 2,000 years ago. And he finds out on the scepter information that one advantage that we have is that the whole thing has never been put together before, and that reveals a new thing. They had read the two things separately before, but when they put it together, I was thinking it would either give you a new reading on the height of the stick or give you a new reading on the date that it happened. So they may be 500 years off, which would add four degrees to the computation. Any way you look at it, the whole inside of the staff has to be cut in such a way that only at a certain time of day and only for the distance of the hole would the sun show the exact spot where the arc is hidden. Yes, if they had a spotlight, they could shine it. That would be the most expedient way to do it. Otherwise, they would have to wait for the sun. It's more dramatic to see the sun rising. And he's waiting around, looking at this little figure. And then the sun hits it, and he marks the spot. We could rationalize it by saying in that day, they didn't have spotlight units, which they didn't unless you went to Hollywood. The thing about sunrise and sunset that I like is that it gives you a precise thing. When you say noon, it's very hard to tell when noon is unless you have a clock. But sunrise and sunset is when the sun is halfway over the horizon, and it will always line up that way for eternity, except for the Earth shifting. Also, the time of year has a big effect. That would be another part of the calculation they would all have to go into. I thought we would relate the date to the summer solstice or the rites of spring or some particular date, the Ides of March or however you want to do it. What they would do is not be there on the particular date, but they would know where the sun would be. So they would move at 16 degrees. Then that's where it is. This can't take much time or the audience is going to go right to sleep. It has to be quickly explained and accomplished. We have to decide what we want to do in terms of we can have common knowledge. If we want the Nazis to have figured it out, do it in general conversation. The height of the staff was four hands, three hoves high. One point should be the bugaboo, the date. I think that's a little complex, too, or the fact that the Earth has shifted slightly. It has to be information contained on the missing sculpture. The other way to do it is when you put the two parts together. The general information says that the staff is four hands high. That's in the textbooks. So the Germans use that. When he puts it together, right in the crack, it's 14 hands high, and nobody ever knew that before. That part was on her thing, and when it fits together... You see the outline of a one there. It's not a four, it's 14. And that's real easy to grasp. So when he goes in there, the Germans are using the short staff. He puts on a real tall staff and he gets the right information. They could be a mile away from where he is. They're all doing it right, but they haven't misinformation because nobody ever put the two pieces together. That makes it all different. It's especially good if it's a whole maze where the digs are that you could very easily get lost in. When he begins digging on his side, you can always hear the Germans working on the other side of the city. You know, the echoes of their equipment. My whole idea, although it does complicate the way the sun comes through, was that it was all underground. The main dig where they found the city was a hole about the size of a house. When he goes and digs for his thing, he just measures off into the desert and starts digging down. And finally, he hits something, opens it up, stone or something. So it's just a little hole about that big, and it leads into a big underground temple. When he gets caught and they close him in down there, they just roll this thing over the hole and the desert's like the way it was, except he's trapped down there. Although he could hear some of the people's strange sounds, he could also hear them in the desert. They're yelling at each other. When he's trapped in that tomb, he should get out himself. There are several things of interest that might work there in terms of the serial aspect of the movie. It's difficult in the desert, 
but it is conceivable having the room fill with water. Not only do they get trapped in there, the thing starts filling up with water. Wouldn't it make more sense for it to be sand? That would be a more logical kind of mechanism. That might be nice, but not nearly as dramatic. The problem is, you can't shoot the guy under the sand. The camera is always restricted to just one level. The thing about water that's more dramatic is that when it comes crashing in, it goes splashing all over the place. One way of doing it, I thought maybe the city was built on a river. You assume it would be on a river or an oasis. It wouldn't be built out in the middle of nowhere. It's possible that whatever it was dried up over the years. He would go down and there would be a river or a stream that he would be working on the edge of. Maybe a flat thing, then a cliff and a riverbed. Now, to get him out of it, which isn't easy, we should have a hidden granite rock or something. Something. When forced by the pressure of the water, loosens a rock that begins to come out. It would be terrific if he were forced into another chamber. The water is like a big wave just rushing behind him, tumbling him from one passageway to another, really getting hurt. It knocks him against walls. He could wash into the Germans' camp. Does he have the Ark right now? No, they've, they've taken it away from him at this point. How big is the Ark? Big, I think. Does it float? The Ark would be gone by then. They took the Ark out and threw him back. I think the Ark is about as big as that fireplace. Big box. If he's down in there, there would be... Yeah, and this is a little funny. There are little beams and stuff, little trees maybe, which obviously wouldn't be down there for thousands of years. The idea was he could take one huge beam as the water is coming in and he takes a couple little rocks. He ties the beam to the end of the beam and then he takes a couple of the other flotsam and jetsam or whatever and he kind of finds that and he ties it about halfway up the beam. So he's got a beam like this and he has weight on one end and then he's got a bunch of junk there. So as the water takes it up, it writes the beam up like that, and the beam is sort of just floating there. Suddenly, the weight isn't enough for the thing, so it sort of lifts off and floats like this, and he pushes it around until it gets the right position. So as the water lifts off, just the hydraulic pressure of the water lifting it up, because the it sink the... The beam would stop at some point. It would stop, but the water would keep rising, and it would push it down. There would be tremendous amount of pressure, depending on how much junk he had tied to it, to push through something. It's a good idea, but I think that at some point, the equalization inside the... If it's that big of a limb that it's going to push something out, it's not going to stay upright. It's going to be floating this way or that way. If it's floating, would put a weight on one end and he could ride it. And then he would just keep tying flotsam onto it. The more flotsam he has here, the more pressure would build up. My original idea was that he just took a beam and if he shoved it, eventually the pressure would make it poke through. I thought it would be some kind of big log, but I don't know why a log would be down there. I wish there was a way for him to get out of it with no resources. How's the water coming in? Maybe that's the way to go. Maybe there's a way out at the top of an unreachable ceiling. But then, you know, if he's getting up toward the door, he can get out. It's better if there are some mummies around. It's obviously going to be an expository scene, no matter how you do it. We want to do something to make it better than just a regular scene. Let's talk about the Washington scene. Another way to do the scene is, you think you're so smart, because he knows more than they thought he knew. So they give him test questions, and our guy knows all the answers. I like that. They're telling him, but he knows more about it than they do. Or it's possible that they know he knows a lot about this. He knows about it because of his mentor, who has a piece of it which is also why they want him to do it. There is a unique way. He comes in with the colonel and the colonel says, 
What we have here is the legend of the Lost Ark. You know all about it, don't you? Yeah, I know everything about it. Here's a ticket to Cairo. Do it as blatantly as possible. They'll appreciate it. The other way to do it is let him know about the Ark and not them. Have the army guy say that they found the lost city. Hitler is going after all these artifacts. He believes in all the supernatural stuff and everything. We don't know what they found out there, but it must be awfully important because they're sending for this professor. Our guy is the one who puts two and two together. Then he sort of explains it. They have all the pieces of the puzzle and they want him to get whatever the Germans are after. He says, I'll tell you what they're after. They're after the lost Ark. Is there some way to bring in the mural? They're completely unaware of it, and it's right there. Yes, they could have the mural. Maybe they've intercepted some photographs of the mural that were found in the city. They snuck off some copies of the German correspondences, drugged one of the couriers, something like that. You're talking about the map of the city. Yeah. I'm talking about the frescoes that show the Ark being carried away by the army. The army crumbling in the path, and the Hebrews valiant and racing behind the Ark, and thousands of Romans clutching their stomachs and light coming out, and they're covering their ears. They're shouting, a real mayhem scene. And our guy turns and says, and that's what Hitler wants. You can do that in one of two ways. You can either move the location or you can have it in the room. If you have it in the room, it's going to be, there's the lost ark right there. It's a little convenient. The person we're really taking on a tour is this army clown. He's the ignorant one. So they say they're looking for the lost ark, And that guy asks them what the Lost Ark is. Then they cut to the antiquities part of the museum. You go into that room and say, this is the Lost Ark. It shouldn't be right in the office. Don't even cut to the actors. We'll do the whole story on the mural with their voices over it. It would be simply that the curator and our hero took this army guy or the two army guys to show them the Lost Ark and say, this is what the Germans are after. Instead of being an exposition scene, it's also a puzzle scene. He walks in and solves the puzzle. At the end, the army guy should be completely in awe of it. My God, if General Patton only knew, I'm not going to tell George. He'd go down there with you. I like the idea of him putting all the pieces together. The fact that the Nazis have found this lost city is interesting to them. The army guys can give a bit of exposition and information about Hitler and the fact that he's going all over the world trying to find the Jesus sword and all these other things. They can give little anecdotes about mystical things that he's been into all this time. The problem is this army guy believed that if Hitler got this, he would be invincible. We can imply that. He didn't even need the Ark to attack. Why wait for that? One army guy says, that's nuts. The other guy says, it's only nuts if you don't believe in it. But if you do believe in it, think of what you might do. And on the basis of that, he has to beat the Germans. In the end, the basis could be, it's not that important to us, but if it's important to them, then we want it. The army guy should be the opposite of Patton. He should think it's all a bunch of bullshit. And why doesn't the army go for it themselves? It's too overt an operation for us to get into with the world on the brink of war. And if we tried to take this operation and get it through normal channels, they would laugh us crazy. It's more of a personal thing for this colonel or whoever is doing it. If the Germans want it so bad, I want it. I want to keep them from having it. This is a semi-official thing. The situation is too sensitive to waste the energy on something that's just so nebulous. It's important, so they want to at least send this guy off to do it. They can't do it as an official army thing. But if that's what they find, then the museum will pay them a commission because they want it. Of course, that fouls up the end. Of course, in the end, if he tells them that it is a secret weapon and it destroyed them all, then they decide not to give it to the museum. They stamp top secret on it and shove it away in a vault somewhere. 
It must be explained somewhere in this scene that this will not decide the outcome of the war or when the war will begin. It has nothing to do with that. It will give Hitler a certain kind of comfort that we don't want him to have. If he gets it, then he will believe that he's invincible. Otherwise, the audience is going to say that this isn't very important. That's what worries me about this part. They say, here's two tickets to Cairo. He tells them he needs to go to Shanghai to pick up something first. He goes to buy this thing for the Chinese warlord, and he needs X number of dollars to buy it. Immediately, he starts spending money. Or we were going to have this guy go get it. We have to set up a thing where he tells the general he's going to Shanghai. He doesn't go to steal it. He will have wired that information to Shanghai, so his agents are doing it. That bothers me a little bit because it takes away from the awesome power of this Chinese warlord. If you can send just any operatives who happen to be there, he says, you guys pick it up. I'll pick it up at the airport. What it should be is this warlord, who is pretty frightening himself, doesn't phase our guy. I'll get it from him. And it could be that he says, I'm going to Shanghai. Have two of your best agents meet me there. And I also want $50,000. What for? I have to buy this little artifact. It's a key to this. What happens to that money? Well, he spends it through the rest of the movie. What about a vendetta with this warlord? Like the warlord gave him a big scar. You don't want to have to make the whole two ingrown. So there's some familiarity there. Would he think of this strange warlord, someone he's never seen before? Obviously, he can be aware of where it is, just as we're aware of a lot of things in the film business. It's possible that he knows the guy. He might not know him, but he has to know that it's there. He has to know of him, and he has to know what's there. Obviously, this guy is one of the big art collectors of the East. I worked for him one time. He didn't pay me. Obviously, the villain knows he's there. This warlord should be a completely outrageous character with all the armor and costumes. He should be a barbarian. He only becomes a gentleman around great works of art. And he collects them for some bizarre reason. He collects it because he's heard that's what gentlemen do, and that will make him a gentleman. But he hasn't the vaguest idea what that is. That's a good angle on this character. Here's a man who's desperately trying to become civilized, and he fails at every turn. Now we cut to the airplane flying across the ocean. Cut to the airplane landing on the ocean, a long shot of him walking out of the airplane and down the dock. Cut to him in the airport or whatever met by one or two, maybe one American, one Chinese agents. He could have sent them a telegram so he could zip by a lot of exposition. I made an appointment to meet with General Fu Manchu. Somehow they know the Germans are on their way there. So they immediately tell him what we want to do is very quickly get rid of all the exposition where he explains what he has to do. Somewhere in here, we need to mention the staff. The thing is, do we do it in Washington or we do it in Shanghai? Why would he bother to explain it to these guys? One of the things is to demonstrate, not talk about it. The demonstration thing would be the girl when they put it together. Another kind of demonstration, like a beautiful vase on a table that is worth a complete fortune. And they're all looking at this and a man carefully puts his glasses on, looks at the vase, then takes a hammer and breaks the thing. He divides all the pieces up to be shipped all over the world and sold. I hate doing this. I hate destroying great art, but it's a living. Bam, crash. You realize that this is what happens to all great works of art to make more money for the greedy bastards. And the audience realizes that this is why the staff is in several pieces. There could be a demonstration of what the staff does before he gets to Nepal, show why it's so important without telling them, without adding to the exposition in Washington. In Nepal is when he talks about it, the height of the pole, and he puts it together and he realizes it's 14, not four. 
we have to know what he's doing in Shanghai. If you don't know about that staff, you don't understand what he's getting from that warlord. We can say, we're never going to find the Lost Ark until I get the Staff of the Sun. Other way to do it, as I was saying before, is if they intercepted photographs, which they were sending to his rival that have pictures of the floor of the map. And he knows instantly what it is. It would be good for him to have that information. Instantly, he knows they are going to go after the staff. It has been totally unimportant up to now. Once they have the map, then you need the staff. All of a sudden, it's very important. This is the map of the lost city. The mayor had a staff with the sun on top, and when you stood there, the sun would shine through it and point to the temple where the ark is. You could actually explain it backwards. You start with the lost city, and you end with the ark. They have these pictures. They found the lost city. This guy is going. What does it mean? Well, this is the map of the city. The mayor used to stand in this big circle with his staff and the sun would hit the staff and the sun would then burn into the secret temple of the Ark, which no one knew except at that time of year or whatever. The guy says, what's the Ark? The Ark is what they're after. That would work. Then we know everything. They say they'll send him to Cairo. Then he says he's going to Shanghai because that's where the top of the statue is. We don't have to know any more than that. When he gets that part from Shanghai and he gets the girl's part, how much would he have? I I think he would have the whole staff then. I was thinking back to where they had part of it. They have the map and they have the research information. So it's in two parts and she's wearing the sun and at the bottom of the sun is the number one. Right. At the point where they were broken apart. In Sanskrit. Whatever. It's in Cairo, but it doesn't have to be. I only use that because it's one of the 30 cities. In the research, it will probably be an Israeli city. In the Middle East, somewhere we'll be able to find a a plausible city. We can say he heard about it in Cairo. We can say whatever we want. I was seeing it that they had lost it and their fortunes changed. In the end, it would have to be modified to fit the legend. We should try to remain as consistent with the real legend as we can. Whatever holes there are, we can fill. We shouldn't deny what the legend of the Ark is. The whole concept was that you could talk to God with it. The whole thing has to be believable. When people leave the movie, they should think that the army has this one thing in their thousand giant warehouses, and that's where the lost Ark is. Is it in Washington? Wherever the army keeps that top secret stuff. It should probably stay there for eternity because it's lost in the bureaucratic shuffle. Now, the thing in the Himalayas we really haven't fleshed out yet. How does he get from where he ends the toboggan ride to her? Oxen. There's just a couple of second unit shots. He's within 300 miles. We are getting into a lot of travel and problems. All you really have to do is dissolve it. One wipe and he's sitting with her talking, boy, you look in bad shape. What happened to you? Well, I had a bad trip. Should we have a confrontation between the warlord and Indiana? We can have a direct confrontation by having Indy get caught in the act. He's standing there with this thing as the warlord leads the Nazis into the room. That's really the way it should work. She's a rough and tumble girl. She says, it belonged to my father. It's mine. We have to get a good scene there. How we get into that scene is the most important of it. He jumps out of the plane. He lands. He's all snowy. He looks around, wipe, and he's walking into the thing or he's just sitting there with the girl. Cut to her saying, long time no see. Yeah, I guess it's been a long time. Or do you cut to him walking into the bar and he sort of walks up and sits down and she comes up and says, I don't want to throw away their first sight of each other. I would like very much if she didn't see him at first, but he witnessed her dealing with a bunch of rowdies. He's on the other side and he watches her in action. He really gets a lot of respect for her. 
She's really grown up. Then he deals with her. What if we lose him, see her dealing with the rowdies? She clears the place out and then sees him sitting there. She says, I'm sick of all this. And she almost has a nervous breakdown right in front of everybody. She breaks up a fight and tells them to get out. Everybody leaves except for our guy. She doesn't know who he is because his back is turned. She tries to get rid of him, too. You have to be careful no matter what you do. When he turns around, it's going to be Indy? He turns around smiling. He's planned it for this dramatic effect. It has to be careful. I like the idea of cutting to her and seeing her in action tough. She should be Rick in control of the situation. This is the normal thing for her. She shouldn't be hectic or frantic. And I like him to witness this. And she doesn't know he's observing. When they meet there, there should be some kind of good scene between them. He should say, where's your father? He died five years ago. I sent you a note. We had to bury him up here. It's like she's really rubbing it in. Maybe she didn't send him a note. Her feeling when he walks in is here is a guy she loved. He left her. She's stuck up here in the middle of nowhere. All of a sudden, out of the blue, he shows up in the middle of Nepal. Her first reaction should be, oh, my God, what are you doing here? Or it could be totally sullen. She should still be burning over the thing and the fact that he maybe she did send him a note when her father died and he never got it. I like the idea that she greets him with disdain when he first walks in. The fact that she sent him a note when her father died five years ago and she was hoping that he would come and comfort her. He didn't even acknowledge the note. She says, you're too late. He says he's been traveling around. I wonder if her first reaction isn't going to be to hit him. Something unusual, not just a slap. First sight, register who it is. Wham. Still got that right cross I taught you. Hey, Junie, long time no see. Wham. And she says, get out. They should refer to the death of the father. The idea that he's there to find her father, his old mentor. He's not there to find her at all. The father had the other part, and he thinks he might be able to help him. She should have her hair like Veronica Lake. You only see one eye at a time. When he asks her for it, she could be all pissed off about all that stuff because that's what got her there. She loved her father, but she puts on his act. It could be interesting if she were putting on an act. I threw out all that junk when he died. It ruined his life and it ruined my life. I never kept any of that junk. He was a fool. He says he wanted to buy it. She starts pumping him for money or something, telling him she sold it to an agent. And I can tell you who the agent is if you cut me in. That may be later. She says no. Or maybe she says she sold all the junk to an antiquity dealer. She tells him where the junk is. He says, thanks. Was that all you wanted? That's all I wanted. She says, why don't you come back and see me later? Some kind of thing where he has to come back. Maybe it should be on a personal level. Maybe they become friends. He leaves and then we cut to, she she reveals that she's got it. Instantly, you say she's got it, but she's not going to give it to him. The first tender moment is they kiss, embrace, then part. His hand draws away whatever was covering it and he sees she's wearing it. Maybe she could be very tender about it. She's keeping it because it does remind her of her father and she doesn't want to give it up to him. He doesn't tell her exactly what he wants, just that it's one of the artifacts her father had. She tells him she threw it all away. This is the one thing she kept. You can play it either way. She's holding out on him or she doesn't know what he's talking about. He almost walks out. We know she has it, but he doesn't. Essentially, he tells her what he wants and she tells him she wants to get out of there and how much he is willing to pay for it. But if he went to buy the other thing... That's why I was bothered by the money. Or he could be a nice guy. Look, I'll give you $50,000 for it. I'm just trying to be nice. Jesus, $50,000? This must be some trinket. In the middle of the negotiations, the Nazis come in. 
Maybe this time they're out of the bar, gone to the bathroom. Then the Nazis burst in and he protects her. He kills a couple Nazis. She says, what was that all about? He tells her they're after their pendant. This must be some pendant. What is it anyway? He tells her a little bit about it. This must be worth more than $50,000 if the Nazis are willing to kill for it. I want in for half. He makes the mistake of offering her the money. I like what you said yesterday, which is that she wants to go back a lady. The 50 grand would do it. That's what bothers me about his having the money to give to her. She's going to go through a lot of hell now to increase that 50 grand. But she doesn't know what kind of hell she's going to go through. You mean she's been stuck in this hell hole and she's going to turn down 50 grand? Maybe he offers her $500 and she turns that down. Then he offers her $6,000. I know what you're saying. If she got that money, she'd take it and run. Let's not give him the money then. All we have to do is... We have a million places for him to lose it. On that toboggan ride, there could be a shower of money. To hell with that, I'm lucky to be alive. Or he could even lose it with the emperor. He doesn't have to have it. The only reason he has to have it is we know he's not going to steal it from him. I like him having it, and I like him losing it. They're racing to the airport, and the money belt comes off and flies into a junk anywhere along the line. When the Germans burst in, I like the idea that they can't come to a deal and he leaves. As he walks outside on the street, there's all these nefarious shadows converging on this place, on her place. It's not just a staff car pulling up. We have to assume that these guys are agents and not just SS officers, trench-coated. Like the guys in The Great Escape. He hides in the shadows and watches all this take place, and he has to get back to the cafe to save her, rather than just being there and getting caught with his pants down. It's better if he comes to her rescue. I like the image you conjured yesterday of him being on the balcony and looking down from above. Maybe he could do something neat from up there. This is the first time he's come into a direct confrontation, your standard. With Nazis, you have to use your fists because they're despicable people. This won't be too much of a problem. It's just a matter of twisting the situations. I think the first two are unique enough in their only way not to conflict with this. After this, we don't really have that much before we have him get into the real mess. This could be a big fight. And I like the fact that he's somewhere else, either upstairs or coming back in from outside. It would be nice if they left in a huff, they fought or something. He left rather pissed. I don't think he would leave without the pendant. That's the only thing that bothers me about it. So he goes upstairs and stays up, plotting how he's going to take it off of her. That makes him into a real rat. That's all right. He never does it. What he does is just the opposite. Saves her life. No matter how you do it, the fact that he thought about that is the rat part. Rhett Butler was a rat. Well, he wasn't a real rat. He proved himself by raising her family. Before that, he was a gambler, dealt with cheap ladies. There's a difference between being a rat and somebody who's having fun. He never hurt anybody. I'm a little confused about Indiana at this point. I thought he'd do anything for this pendant. But he still has to have some moral scruples. He has to be a person we can look up to. We're doing a role model for little kids, so we have to be careful. We need someone who's honest, trusting, and true. But at the same time, he's confronted with this difficult problem. We have a great thing when she won't give it to him. She doesn't like him. What if you see them separate and you see them both thinking about it and it's clear that she's going to give it to him. Then he saves her and she doubts his motivation. Was he coming to steal it or was he coming to rekindle the romance? It doesn't have to be crystal clear to her. You could have it where he finds the pendant. They have some kind of a thing and she hides it. Although in the fight, it would be great if she were wearing it. Maybe she was writing a note to him when they attack, and then she takes it off. I'm enclosing this pendant 
If she took it off and it's sitting right there on the desk, it more or less has the same effect. The Germans come in and start punching her around and asking where the pendant is. And it's sitting right there. What's it made of? Stone. I thought it was metal. It could be metal. It can't be wood because it's too old. If it's right there on the desk, the pendant is in jeopardy. During the fight, show feet almost stepping on it. All you have to do is have her have a little wooden box. She takes the pendant off and puts it in. She starts writing the note and the Germans come in. One of the Germans puts his hand on the box and asks where the pendant is. He comes in and they have a fight. In the middle of the fight, they knock over the table and the little box breaks open. The pendant goes rolling across the floor. Immediately, you think someone is going to see it. It's sitting just out in the open. You're afraid one of the Germans is going to notice it. He finally gets rid of the Germans and he picks it up. I love the idea of fire. When it rolls across the floor, it could roll into the fire. You don't think it's going to burn up, but he has to retrieve it. Maybe at the same moment, he uses fire as a weapon. I love it if he could burn down her only stake in the world, which is the inn. That's a good idea. The pendant might lead him to the fire. He uses the fire. The Nazis would do it. Let's have the Nazis cause the fire. He's the one who brought the Nazis there, so it's his fault anyways. I like the idea of doing the old branding iron scene before he bursts in. I love branding iron stuff. It's a red hot poker. That's what starts the poker. It immediately starts It starts immediately on the fight. When he comes in, he knocks the poker out of her hands. The poker goes into the curtains, immediately starts the fire. They fight. The box gets knocked off the table. One of the Nazis sees the pendant as it falls and starts to go to the floor for it. He gets hit in the head by a falling beam or something. When it's all over, they end up with the pendant and a pile of rubble. And she says, you're going to be a long time paying for this. Then he, he feels sort of obligated to bring her along since he does feel sort of guilty. She has to sort of insist. That's why it's important in the first scene that we understand she's a tough broad. She doesn't give a shit about going out and roughing it up a bit, but she has no idea what they're in for. She wants to get out of there and she still loves the guy. She can say, Charlie, you're my ticket home. Wouldn't the Germans pull guns and start shooting? Yes, but he comes in and he uses his whip. He also maybe has a gun. You can just have as many Nazis as you want. You don't have to have 20 Nazis, just a couple of agents. There should be one big Nazi, the torture guy. He's 6'6", weighs 290 pounds, wearing this huge overcoat. He's the guy, if our guy hits him in the jaw, it doesn't even, he only hurts his hand. And you have the local yokels, the two guys with the Tommy guns and the furry overcoats, yak coats, just off the border warp, whatever. Sort of the local interpreters they've picked up. Right now, we've got about five. Two local yokels, one big Nazi, and two other Nazis. The Nazi is struggling with our hero, and they're kind of rolling around on the ground, and one of these henchmen is standing at the door, trying to get a clear shot because they keep moving. Two of the other Germans who are struggling with the girl say, Shoot both of them! The German who's rolling around with our hero panics, pulls out his own gun, and shoots the guy with the Tommy gun, kills them both to save himself. All the bad guys in this movie are so vile, they turn on themselves. Now they're standing on the rubble. Cut to Cairo. Let me ask you one thing about this fight. How gory do you guys see this movie? Not very. Not not very. It should be Saturday matinee violence. How about death by fire? That's okay. Now we have two people in Cairo. We have his old friend who's an archaeologist who's digging out there. And we have his old friend, the Arab digger. He is like a workman slash foreman. He's like his old sidekick. He's got the Arab kid. That's where they stay. Obviously, he was doing some digs out there at one time, and they go back a long way. He's a Walter Houston Arab type. And he has a young son who's our tag along. Never stops talking. 
the crazy little Arab kid that's really a pickpocket. The old man is poor, but very well connected. He's the one who gets in the boat and the tools and the information. Plus, he probably knows a lot about what the Germans are doing. He's like the chief digger in the area. Obviously, the Germans have hired all these diggers, so he knows what's going on out there because they keep telling him every day. He gets updates on the situation. How do you guys feel about subtitles? I don't like them. I don't either. I think it would be better if we don't understand what they're saying. I like hearing English, but with a German accent. Depends on how you work it, but I like hearing people speak in their native tongue, except for people who have a right to speak in a different tongue. You don't have to talk to the people who speak in a funny tongue. Only the lead characters speak broken English. Everybody else speaks what they speak. What about when Indiana assumes German? Should we know what he's saying? When does he assume German? When he's carrying the Ark to the truck. I don't know that it's important that we know what he's saying. There's more tension if we don't know what's going on. Let's say the Ark villain is French. When he's speaking to this German... Maybe they could speak English. Maybe the arch villain is smart enough to speak German, but they're not smart enough to speak French. What about the Arab kid? He's just talking endlessly and you never understand what he's saying? But if he's going to be a buffoon character, you want to understand him. Maybe he slows down once in a while to say something stupid. When he talks fast, you just don't care. We might be able to play on that. It's conceivable that he and his father could speak English because they work with English archaeologists all the time. I'll write the entire movie in English. I think you should go to his friend first because then we get a reevaluation of what's going on. We have a scene around the dinner table with 18 kids. We find out that the Germans have made a makeshift staff. The French professor has made it and used it to pinpoint a temple. Now they're digging for the temple. It's great. The Germans have already found the temple and they're trying to dig it up. The old man says, don't worry, I'm making it slow. It will take forever for them to find it. We had a cave-in yesterday. Or maybe he says they have a cave-in to slow them down. That's the exposition that goes on in that scene. I wonder if his friend should be the one who helps him find the number. We don't have time to do that in the Himalayas. Then he goes to his friend who is digging on another project. He's working on the thing he's been working on for years. He's sort of an East Coast Yaley. He's his old roommate, same age, but he's gone the straight route. He goes to him at his digs or maybe a cafe scene. Maybe he meets him at the digs and they go to one of those cafes to talk. The guy doesn't like him too much. You can tell they're close friends, but the guy disapproves of what Indy is doing. He doesn't hate him for it, but at the same time, he wonders why he didn't go straight. I thought he could be a place where the friend, I thought that could be a place where the friend helps him put it together. You get rid of a piece of exposition there about the thing. That would have to be in the privacy of someone's quarters, not in a cafe. Let's say she's wearing the pendant, it's metal. At the point below, it might be flat. It could be some sort of size that she could strap it to his body. But we don't want it to be too small because they'd have two small pieces. If it was about that tall and that wide, he could either tape it under his arm or on his ankle. But it would be sort of like a flat metal knife. I like that his friend in here there when he puts it together. And that his friend helps him. His friend is really more of a scholarly archaeologist than he than he is. It's old college buddies. It's the turning point. Originally, it was a puzzle that everyone was puzzling over, and it was his buddy that found the key. I don't know if the scene with his buddy should be the next scene. It might be good to have the Arab scene, then have an action danger scene, and then have the scene with his friend. Then the next place we're going is when he's on the dune overlooking the camp, and he sees all these tanks and stuff. An action scene could be a Cairo street scene, tents and a big sword. They also have daggers. It's the kind of scene where maybe he's getting followed. A bunch of Arabs try to jump him in the street and there's a Nazi with them. They know that he's there. Now she tags along. 
before, this is where I had her go off with the Germans and come back with all the information. But I think we can get the information from the digger. I don't know what we do with her. How about if we have her kidnapped? Who would kidnap her? And for what reason? The Arabs. Maybe they're going to rape her. White slavery. I would rather have a plot kidnapping than just a carnal kidnapping. If he gets jumped on the street and they take her, obviously the Nazis. Maybe they're taking her to find out what she knows. She fights them off, but they get her in the process. They take her alive rather than kill her so they can find out what they know and what he's after. Maybe these are like semi-agents of the Nazis, but more agents of the Frenchmen. It's something he's more interested in. Or they're Nazi agents, one Nazi and a bunch of Arabs. Maybe there's some writing on the thing that he can't decipher. In the scene at the home in Cairo, he's putting the thing together and he's trying to read some of the stuff and he can't. He shows it to the Arab and he can't read it. It's much older than anything he knows. Then he says, is Phil still around? Yes, maybe Phil can read it. He takes the thing to him to try and find out what it says. And it's on the way there. They get Shanghai. This is where you have a great street fight. Maybe use his bullwhip. In the process, she gets captured. Whisked away to a waiting staff car. How does he react to that? Does he go on to see Phil or does he go right after her? Yes, it seems pretty mundane that he would go on to Phil after that. Is there some way to really convince him that she has died? That's fun. But you have to do it really well, and I don't know how. And then he could feel bad about it until he sees her again. It could be the obsession trick. The car she's in goes offhand, disappears, then appears again, goes off again, and appears again. Then it goes off a cliff and burns. In fact... On one of those dog legs to the left, they jumped out with her and the driver went off alone and he actually crashed. We in Indy feel that she's dead when we see the car burning at the bottom of a cliff. That would work. You can sort of cheat. It's all the images of a girl in the backseat just before the thing goes over. You don't really see her, but you think you do. You're convinced that it actually happened. Or you see the car switch, another comes in and takes over. But Indy knows and isn't fooled by it. You sort of think that he's going to go after the wrong car, but he doesn't. He goes after the right car. And that's the car that crashes. But we don't know is also in the process of that. There's another switch that happens that we don't see. There are two switches. We see the first one happen. The second one is set up the same way. That's good. What can he chase him with? What if if he jumps on a camel? I love it. It's a great idea. There's never been a camel chase before. Is this camel going to chase a car? You know how fast a camel can run? Not just that. He can jump over vegetable carts and things. It could be a very funny chase that ends in tragedy. You're laughing your head off and suddenly, oh my God, she's dead. We have to go another way of getting them off the cliff. They're starting to get on the outskirts of town, going along this mountain road. He doesn't follow them down the road. He goes over the hill. You have shots of him racing along and shots of them racing along. He sort of comes down right in front of them with a gun. They're riding along and he's pointing a gun at them and they go off the thing. And that's a way for him to get them to crash. And he thinks he killed her. This isn't working out at all. It's a cheat, but we have a piece of her clothing or something or or her purse. When do we have the big fight with the flying wing? That's when he gets into the camp. It's a secret landing strip, too. It's what they were going to use to fly the Ark back to Germany. We still have the big fight in the moving truck to do. And now we have a camel chase. We've added another million dollars. Not really. How much trouble can a camel be? It will be funny. It'll also be great because the camel is so outmatched with the car. Once he gets out of town, you realize the car is going to outrun him, so he veers off. That has a whole lot of twists in it. And when you cut to a close shot of the hero, it's really erratic and bumpy. He can go through clotheslines. The car goes under the clothes, and half the clothes on the line are wrapped around the camel for about a block. 
Then we have the scene with the old friend. It'll be better because he feels terrible. They can talk about old times, his wife and his mother and the dorm, whatever. This thing has cost me more than I. And then it will be a great moment when he goes into the tent. She's all tied up, ropes all around her in a gag. She's over in a corner somewhere. You mean she's not going to be in a rolled up rug and he rolls out the rug so we get rid of her for a while? It's only for a couple scenes. He sees his old friend and his old friend puts the things together and gives him the clue about the change in the exposition. He's mourning the girl, and that's where we find out it's 14 feet instead of four feet. Maybe the friend helps him build the staff. He would have a lot of stuff, especially at the dig. How are they going to carry it around? It doesn't have to be 14 feet. It could be inches. It has to be in hands anyway. It's some old Hebrew measuring system that's translated into whatever you want. He goes out with Sabu, the Arab clown, and the girl. No, the girl is gone. And the number one son of the digger. Well, the number 23 son. The girl has been kidnapped already. And he's sad and remorseful. Kidnapped and killed. He killed her, then talked to his old friend. In the scene with the old friend, it might be interesting to zap it with something, meaning a shadow on the wall. We don't want the bad guys to find out about the trick, the discrepancy. At the same time, if one of the waiters started to pull out a knife, some kind of thing to hype that the scene in terms of action and suspense and terror. Maybe somebody plants a bomb while they're talking. Arab walks by and leaves something, then walks off. At the last minute, he figures something out, and they duck, and the thing blows up. An Arab sent by the Germans? Somebody who was following them. What if the guy who's bringing the tray of food in is pouring powder in the drinks all through the food and the soup? He's laced everything with poison for both of them. He brings it in, sets it down, and they're wrapped up in their conversation, but the food is always there with this implied threat. At one point, our hero would take the chicken and just start gesturing with it. He's too caught up to eat it. He's not paying attention, and this cat jumps up on the table and nibbles on the food. The cat freaks, just goes crazy and jumps up, climbs up the walls. And he says, I'm not going to eat this. What if it's an animal we hate, the animal the audience can't stand? It's always after our hero and doesn't like him very much, like a mongoose. A monkey is a perfect thing. What animal don't people like? A rat. A pet rat. It doesn't have to be a pet. He's looking the other way. The rat comes up. That's a pretty brave rat. It wouldn't come on the table. Let's say we make two scenes with his old friend, or, or maybe even three. After the girl dies, maybe we cut back to him in the Arab family, a very short remorse scene. We say where he's going, an expression of grief from the family. Then we go to the old friend. They were on their way there when the whole thing started. Rather than she dies and he just continues on his way, he goes back and we have a short scene with the family, consoling. Maybe the old man gives him another piece of information about what the Nazis are doing, so we move the plot along just a bit. It's very short, about a half a page or a page. Mainly, it's just a little respite. Now we know he's going back on his mission again. That way, it makes her getting killed into a little bit more of a thing. The minute they hit Cairo, we can assume that they're being followed. Maybe this Arab operative is the one who has the monkey. It's a villain monkey. The Arab can make him do things, and he sends them in there to steal the piece. They arrive at the airport or whatever. We don't see them at the airport. So we cut from the Himalayas to Cairo, busy streets. We see them walking down the street. We realize they're being followed. The guy is carrying a cage or a little box. And this can be like two or three shots. They stop for a second. She stops to look at something. He's irritated and wants to keep moving. The guy opens up the little cage and he pets the little monkey and send him off. The little monkey goes to the girl or to the guy and makes friends and tags along. They get to the house and the monkey comes in. They just can't get rid of this monkey. 
The girl says she loves the monkey. The guy says to get rid of it. The monkey is making faces and doing cute things. You establish the monkey. On the street, they're going to the friend's house and the monkey is riding on the guy's shoulder or something. It goes on the camel chase and everything. Then you go back to the friend's house for this little respite scene and they write something down where they do it in the first scene. The monkey looks around as they write something down. The monkey picks up the piece of paper and goes out and gives it to a guy outside and then comes back. He's like a little spy. It has to happen real quick because it's very short until the time we want to kill him. He kills the monkey spy. Can the monkey wear a turban? It should be dressed up. Yes, in these three scenes, because the fourth scene is where he dies. We have to establish that he's spying on them. What is the monkey trying to get? Information, pieces of paper and things. Before we kill this monkey, I really want to make him a villain. What if he's along when they're headed out to the friends? The ambush takes place, and as Indy is fighting them off, the girl jumps into a basket to hide, and the monkey leads the Arabs to the girl. That's how they get her. That's good. Also, there's this sleeping cat that the monkey knocks in the face. Something you really hate this monkey for. That can be over the dinner table. I like the cat coming up and starting to eat the food, and then the monkey whacks it, takes the food away from it. He charms his way into their confidence. The monkey should be dressed up as a little Arab. I like the idea of not only having a turban, but also a little backpack. When he puts in the thing, it's sort of picking up letters, any mail, scraps of paper, wads it up, puts it in his pack. We give him a chance in one of these scenes. He follows them down the street. He doesn't have to follow them. They take him with them. He climbs on and they can't get him off. When she's taken away, he could just go back to his master. Then when Indy is with his friend, he could appear again. Indy is not going to suspect the monkey. When they get ambushed on the way to the house, we have to have that sort of scene where the monkey takes off his pack and he gives it to the guy. What if we do that before? I don't want to have a big scene where they say they're going to leave. We should do these in cuts. They're walking down the street. The monkey is on his shoulder. Suddenly, the monkey jumps off and runs away. She yells for him to come back. He says, good riddance. Then we follow him and he takes out all of his stuff and he gives it to some guy. The same guy who dropped him off. And then you follow that guy and he sort of signals to somebody and then they attack. In the middle of the fight, the monkey sort of appears again. When she hides, the monkey runs over to the thing and points her out. He gets on the camel, cut back to the home, and he's there lamenting and the monkey comes back in. I think the monkey... How Hitler. Good garbled. Good <laughs> I think garbled. the monkey something. How Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> and then the greatest line that I've read so far, that's up to you and the trainer and the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> the monkey could come back in the quiet scene and put his arm around him. You might even want to play it where he thinks the monkey ran when the bad guys came. Back at the house when the monkey comes in the window. Well, at least you came back. At the next scene with the old friend, the monkey is there. The monkey beats up the cat. We break this into three parts. The first scene is with the family. The second is at the digs, wherever the old friend is working, or the house. You go into one of these nice Arab houses with servants and everything. I like the idea of them catching the servant. The servant brings in the food, then goes out. There's a scuffle outside, a fight, and our guy goes out. They think he's there to spy or something. You don't know there's poison. It should happen before they put the thing together and discover the mistake. It's important that it should be very clear that whoever the spy is, the poisoner, has no idea that they're making that discovery. The other thing is, possibly when they're writing stuff down, we could still have the monkey taking something, being a thief in that scene too. It could be interesting if Indy caught the guy or the servants caught the guy. Something where he sort of finds out afterwards. I don't know how important that is. We have to see him do the poison. We cut from the digs when he says, come on over and have some dinner. Cut to the servant putting the powder on the food. 
and bringing it to them. I don't know why it concerns you that he'd get caught. Let's say he puts in the poison and then take off. He wouldn't hang around there. He's not a listening spy. He's a poisoning spy. He takes off. They continue their conversation. The monkey eats the food and drops dead. It would be more plausible if the guy, if you cut to him going into the house and they're being followed. When they go in the house, you follow the bad guy. He goes into the back, into the kitchen. He poisons the food without the servants knowing it. The regular servant brings the food in. If it's a strange servant, the guy would know. Nobody would know there's poison. Even the monkey wouldn't know. The monkey comes with Indy? Right. We're going to have the monkey in four or five scenes. Monkey's bite. The monkey drops dead and they get to the staff. What does this scene accomplish between the two of them? Plot-wise, they're discovering the major difference between the old and the new. We get a little bit of tension of old friendship, a little bit of character stuff about them. Plus, we have the tension of the poison going on through the whole thing. Where do you see the digs? I see them sort of in the city. There are city digs and distant digs. One of the reasons I was worried about them catching the guy was I was worried about the guy hearing. What would be interesting, this might be too complex, they're sitting around talking with a plate of poisoned food. There has to be one thing that they would eat around the dip or bread, something they might not eat, like the olives or something. It would be off to the side, not something that's on their plates. The real servant brought in the food. They're engrossed and they just don't get to it yet. Then when they get really close to the puzzle behind their back, the monkey is eating. So they say, this puts us way up on the Germans. Let's have a bite to eat. I was thinking they bring in the couscous and stuff and they put a plate of olives there. Would the guy put the poison just on the olives? That's all he could get to. That's the only thing he could find in the kitchen. Maybe it's the oil he pours on the olives. The olives are sitting there and they're eating and maybe a guy reaches for an olive and drops it. He throws one up and it misses. It bounces off his forehead. This is while they're carrying on their exposition conversation and just beginning to talk about the thing. They haven't really mentioned the fact that he has the thing. As he grabs for another olive, he sees a shadow on the wall or something behind the window. He maybe grabs his bullwhip and gets the guy. That's the guy who poisoned the food and he's also listening on them. He has to do away with him. The guy has to be run off or killed. The guy asks what he was after. He was after this thing that I got. We know that the guy is nowhere around when they talk about it. That gives them a break to get away from their meal. While they're doing it, the monkey is eating the food. I don't know if he even needs the staff. The guy just takes a string and it says it's 89 inches. Then he takes it, puts it in his pocket. So when he gets down there, he can just take the string off and measure off a stick somewhere, break it off and use it. When they say that's the answer to the thing, they realize the Germans must be digging in the wrong place. They turn around and the monkey is dying. You know, I think it would be funny if as they're talking about this and the olives are between them, you see a hairy little paw is pulling olives off the plate, you know, coming in and out of the frame. Finally, the paw comes up to grab an olive and begins slipping like like palsy. You use a little mechanical paw and then you hear a thump. The monkey eats the olives during the exposition. It would be great if the monkey keeled over with an olive in his hand. I wouldn't eat those olives. As our hero looks over and sees the dead monkey with pits all around him, his friend is tossing one up and he finally catches one in his mouth. Hey, I got one. Our guy hits him on the back and makes him spit it out. You know, saves him at the last minute. Either one can save the other. He flips it up and as it's going into his mouth, the other guy grabs it. They asked him, why the hell did he do that? He points to the monkey sprawled out on the floor with pits all over him. Bad olives. One thing that bothers me, the monkey eats just the olives. He can eat other stuff too. Rather than olives, it could be dates. They would stick to his head instead of bounce off. 
It's better with olives. An olive would bounce around the room. The good thing about dates is that that's something monkeys would be crazy about. How does he put the poison on them? Well, he could do it with an oil. You assume it would dry up. Maybe it's just a liquid that he pours on. They look like they've just been washed. You see a guy washing the dates, and then the other guy comes in and pours this stuff on them. Is this a daytime scene? I always envisioned it as a nighttime scene. When the Arab is outside listening, can they be in kind of a tent thing? The only time you see the Arab is when some headlights go by and make the wall translucent. They had a lot of French doors over there. When it's backlit, you see the shadow of a man that's not there without the lighting. Or you can have a giant shade that's pulled down. Does he go outside and kill him? Well, that's what we have to decide. What could he do with a date that would start a sort of Rube Goldberg sort of thing? Very simple, but it would spook this guy. That's hard with a date. I want to get rid of him so we know they didn't learn anything about the thing. What if he does here? Just as they're talking about the 14 inches, the headlights sweep by and our hero sees him. We know the guy knows. Now we have to stop him from taking this information back. When the second pair of headlights sweep, but there's nobody there anymore. So our guy quickly gets up, runs outside, and hears footsteps. Then we can justify his wiping this guy out. Either that or he's run over by a car in his haste to escape. I don't understand why you want to keep him around. I just want to establish without a doubt. He barely gets the poison on the dates, then he runs off. The audience will think he's hanging around somewhere. I would think that to make sure that worked and he would hear them. You know how when somebody is watching, you begin to talk normally. The guy says, listen, I feel a draft. I'm going to close the window. He walks over to the window, reaches out, and then he pulls the guy in the window right through all the stuff. I don't think he has to kill him. He can either knock him out or he can catch him. But if you catch him, we have to give him to somebody. And that takes a lot of time. You can have his own people kill him. I think the idea of him throwing the date, if it were a peach or a banana, it would be easier. If there was a big stone beam and it was under the canvas and above the beam, it opens with a lot of pots on the beam. He could throw the thing and hit one of the pots and the pot could fall over and hit the guy on the head and knock him out. Who is he? Well, he was trying to get to this. I don't think it's a problem if this guy isn't hanging around. I don't mind if he runs away after he poisons. Just cut outside and this guy is running and he jumps on a truck. Okay, we'll assume his job was to poison, not to listen. The monkey is dead. We establish the 14. He says goodbye to his friend. Is this the last time we see this guy? Yes. And at one point I had him at the boat to see him off. But then I decided the family would be better. But we can use him there if we want. The girl is going to be sent back with the kid. The old digger would have all the contacts. Then he goes out there for the first time with Sabu. And he looks over the hill and there are all these Germans and tanks and tents. He has to figure out a way down there. What he has to do is to try to get down into the diggings, set up the staff and figure out where the temple is. At the right time of day. So he would be sitting on a hill waiting for that time. We were talking about sunrise or sunset because then it's a fixed time. What does that do for the angle? I know if it's down in a hole, it doesn't work. It has to be up high enough to get into the hole. The problem is, if it's a big thing on the side of a mountain or something, then it's a big deal. Plus the fact that why didn't they find the city before? What if they have dug it out and the map is on the wall instead of the floor? Then you will get a spot of light. You can also make it a big hole, like 100 by 100 feet. It's really been dug out. The sun comes down and, and one of the wall of the hole is part of the temple. And maybe it's on the wall. The idea is that it is angled down. We have to make sure that the height of the thing would make a difference. It seems like it would be easier to understand if it's on the floor. How important that it be at sunrise? It's not crucial. 
but it's very hard to fix a time three candles. I think you might have to make it work at sunrise. I know how to do it. In these stills that we have with the pictures of the map and everything, we also see pictures of the layout of the temple. Maybe it is in the ground, but when they've excavated it out, there's a big hole in the top of the temple. There's photographs of the hole and photographs of the thing. All our friend has to do is say, when the sun hits that hole and you stand in the center of the symbol, there's a big symbol on the floor, there's a map on the floor, and there's a big hole in the ceiling. When you stand on the symbol with the staff and the sun hits the rim of the hole, it will shine through and fall on the map. All we've done is raise the horizon. Instead of having it down there, we've made the horizon this hole in the ceiling. It's the original hole? Right. We see stills of it in Washington. He says it explains how the sun would come through the hole in the ceiling, and the sun would come through the staff and point to the temple. All he has to do is figure it out himself. He sees the photos and says, I figure the sun is going to come through that hole at about 7.33. We don't want the hole to be too small. No, it's a big hole, like a skylight. Then you would see the sun. Are we creating two points already before they even get to the, as soon as we have the two points, we have a line. Are we creating a second point with the hole? So they wouldn't even have to know how high to make the staff. It would be determined a line of light that would come into the room like this. And their staff would be down here. They wouldn't know how high to make it. Look, look like, like, like this. You're saying that when the sun hits the hole, the entire room is flooded with light. Yeah. I was thinking that when it hits the hole and the light is moving across here like this, you know, that's the time there's like a line of light. It wouldn't work. Why? You have a line which is like the sun in this building. You would see it. There would be a darkness here and light here. Suppose this is what they found on the floor. One of the three places is the temple. We don't know which one it is. If you have the staff in the thing so that it's standing up, it doesn't matter where the sun is. The only thing that's changed is that daylight comes later to the temple. As soon as there's daylight in the temple, you can make your calculation. What it will do is the staff will cast a shadow, and then the circle on the thing with the hole in it will... The shadow will go across like that, because on the tip at the end of the shadow, there will be a light in the center of the shadow. The shadow of the staff will get increasingly shorter as the sun rises. Right. The length of the shadow is determined by the time of day, and the time of the day is fixed by when it first comes over that thing. The only problem there is that it's changed by the time of the year. When the guy talks to his friend, they're discussing it, and he's explaining in detail. Again, we have a rough idea in Washington. With the guy, we say the staff has to be 14 feet high, and they're both archaeologists. They know all this stuff. The ceremony of the great sun god was on the Ides of March. Your Ides of March then is equivalent to December today. So it will be off by three feet. So they compensate for it. If you went out there tomorrow, it would be three feet off from where it is today. One thing this takes away is that moment he sticks the staff in the floor. He can't do that anymore. Why? Because he's not compensating. It depends on how dramatic you want to do it. You can ignore that whole aspect of it. The idea is he puts the staff down and you pan across and there's that little square with the light shining in it. And you say, that's it. Or you do, and he points over three feet, and that's where it is. It could be at the right time. That's quite a coincidence. The guy would acknowledge that the sign lines up on the third Ide of March or something, which is December 13th in our time. We don't explain anything further. We don't even connect it. He goes out to the desert with Sabu and looks over the thing. Do we have him do any snappiness to get down there, or do we have him tell Sabu to stay there and wait and have shots of him sneaking down past guards and slipping down into the hole. All the Germans are drunk, and they have this woman 
dancing around the campfire. It's sunrise. Everybody is sleeping. He stands on the hill dressed like Lawrence of Arabia. He and the kid walk in. The kid is obviously scared to death. He goes down in the hole and the kid stays up there being scared to death. And all the Germans are walking around. He walks right into the German camp as an Arab. Right. There are Arabs in the camp and they're his friends. He walks through the camp and one of the Germans says, hey, you. The guy turns and the German puts up his plate for seconds and our hero sees all these big kettles for breakfast. So he has to take this stuff and feed the Germans. That would be a good thing to happen to the kid. He's sort of waiting there by the hole and the German yells to him and the kid panics. He's sort of serving the Germans and is scared to death. Both of them could start to do that. You're slowing down your action. Also, you have him any minute now he could be caught. And the point of the scene is figuring out where the temple is. You want to put obstacles in his path between here and the temple. Once the audience figures out the point of the scene, it's just irritating to put obstacles in the way of getting to that point. Let the kid do that. It's a nice way to keep him busy. When he's overlooking the hill, we have to assume that some of the laborers are also his friends. Why can't we have them take him right in? We can, but I just like the shot of him standing on the dune overlooking the thing. The digger comes in and says, get in. He gets in the truck and they drive down and go into the camp. He breaks away and goes down into the hole and the kid is standing around being nervous. The kid's father works there, so he wouldn't really be out of place. He's standing by the hole with a rope going down it guarding, so he hopes no one will see him. So he's sitting there serving food, and he keeps looking at the hole. Then you cut to the German sort of walking around the hole, talking and gesturing down. The kid is nervous that the guy will get caught. The guy should see the kid standing there with the rope and ask him to bring it to him. Or maybe they need to pull out a truck or something. In the middle of the kid being nervous about how he's going to get another rope to get him out, the guy asks him to bring him some food. Then we have the kid get something clever. When the guy whistles, maybe he can have brought the rope back and rolled it up, and he's sitting on it. Or when the guy whistles, Sabu, I'm ready, a whole chain of knotted Nazi shirts come down instead of the rope. It's like everybody's laundry has been tied together. You only have three cuts. You have the rope, they use it for the truck, then you cut back to Indy working. Then another guy asks for food from the kid, then you see him looking around as he's serving food, trying to figure out what he's going to do. Then you cut back to Indy and you see the dramatic moment and he calls for Sabu. So it's a real surprise. You assume at that point that the kid is trapped. When Indy calls for him, you know that he's not going to be there. So you play it, Sabu, Sabu, tension, and all of a sudden, a bunch of laundry comes down. The first thing that comes to mind is a German flag. Then he climbs up. Now he has spotted the temple, so go on. I would think on the map, if the thing was shorter, and at that time of day, it would cast a shadow down further on the map. On that, there would be a red circle painted that shows where the thing is. When he does the thing and it lands on the thing, he also maybe takes out a calibrator so he knows where they are and where it is and where that is. And then he goes up. My idea was that he comes up out of the hole. Some Germans go, why aren't you at the digging? And he has to sort of sneak away at this point. He comes under suspicion, so he zips around a tent and jumps into it to hide with the boy. And who should be tied up in the corner? But his girlfriend. What happened to you? He tells them about the cars being switched. Let's get out. I know where the temple is. They go off together. She gets saved. If we do that, then we should have another scene back with the family. Then he should ask how they're going to dig it up with all the Germans. He says he'll figure it out. That's a problem. They go back to step one. Once he's at the dig, shouldn't he just solve everything and do it right then? I'm worried that if he finds the girl... He's right back in the action again. That's good because he has nothing else to do with her but take her with. I thought he would leave her all tied up. Look, I can't take you with me. It would arouse suspicion. So I have to leave you here for a little while. I'll get you out later. 
If they find out that the girl is missing, they're going to start searching everywhere. She says, let me out of here. Let me out of here. And he tells her to keep her voice down. She won't. So he has to gag her again. Look, I'm glad you're okay. It's a big relief to me. I've got a lot of things to tell you, but you're going to ruin this whole thing unless you just sit there and be quiet. You've been here for 48 hours. Another three or four won't make any difference at all. So he leaves her tied and gagged. That would be heroic. I like that. My only concern was that if he takes her, the Germans would be combing the countryside. Are they just keeping her there? We assume they're torturing her. One more thing. Execution at noon. Because they could be doing away with her at any time. They could have her up on a rack. All these torture things going on. He could leave her. It's different. It's funny. And it's also very logical. As long as she's in no danger. And it brings her back into the movie. Then you know she's trapped back there. Suddenly, it's damsel in distress. The problem we had before was why didn't he go after her? Now we know why he doesn't, because it's more important that he get the arc. It works great. We do it. She's really pissed. He's left her there. He goes about a quarter of a mile away to dig up the real temple. He should be there. The boy should be there. And maybe a couple Arabs. The digger had Arabs waiting off in the wings. We either cut to him, cut to the girl struggling, then we cut to him running to this little group of Arabs saying it should be right there. He steps it off and he tells them to start digging in this area right here. So he starts digging. At this point, we either dissolve and he breaks through or we cut to the villains. This might be an interesting place to start going to the villains. Now it's even better because we know what's happening to the girl. We can tell parallel stories. We cut back to the girl and the villains come back. This will be the first time we actually see the French guy and the Nazis. This is the first time we see the real villains. We have a scene with the villains torturing the girl a little bit, rape her, talk about the fact that they're not finding the Ark. She should be screaming his name. She's so pissed off. He had to tie her up. Otherwise, they would know he was around. At the same time, there are people raping and torturing her. I was using that facetiously. If they're doing anything at all. That really makes our guy a bad guy. He could ask her if they've hurt her. She tells him, not yet. They want to know what you know. If they haven't killed you, they won't. Just don't tell them anything and you'll stay alive. The villains don't really have to torture her. We can threaten it. I think it's good that she's in danger. There should be a real slimy German character. He's the only Gestapo involved there. Every time you see him, you know it's going to be the worst pain, like death by torture. This guy looks like a ferret. He's got that slick black hair. Maybe his name is Himmler or something like that. He's a stocky short guy, the master torturer. We can do a threatening torture scene. She says that they haven't hurt her yet. He can assume she's going to be safe. But then they come back and decide they're going to start torturing her. We've had enough of this young girl. Now we're really going to talk. It's funny on her side too. She thought she's okay, but she's not. It is a good time to cut to the villains and establish them. Maybe they've broken into the thing and found out the arc isn't there. Now they're figuring out what they're going to do saying that maybe the calculations were off. They're really angry with the Frenchmen about the fact that they didn't pick the right temple. It's going to take us years to dig up this whole city. He says, maybe it's in the other chamber. We have three chambers. At the rate the Arabs are digging, it's going to take them a week to get into those other chambers. He says, I know it's there. I know it's there. So there's a lot of doubt cast whether they're going to find it. The Arabs keep slowing the production down because they're the friends of the digger. We sort of get their point of view. The Fuhrer wants this right away. How did they figure out where to dig? They built a four-inch pole instead of a four-foot pole. Because they knew what one piece was? Right. But they thought it said four instead of 14. Then how did they get a spot of light? They did the same thing. In this scene, at the home of the digger, it's the first time they've met and they're talking. The digger says, the Germans have found the temple. 
What? How could they have found the temple? I've got the piece. Your Chinese friend had several copies because he is also a forger. They read the height of the stake off the thing. They don't have the pendant, which is very important. No, but he said they made a makeshift, a crude thing, and they made it work. I thought we had figured out a way that he knew. We knew why they had made a mistake. I thought we had figured it out how they chose the spot. We had figured out that they just read the textbook. I like it better that the only way they can find out is that they have to have the piece. The Gestapo comes into where the girl is. She's lying there all tied up. So they untie her and they put her in a chair. They're going to torture her. The main Gestapo guy takes out this little case. He has little wires with felt on them. Clang, zap. He takes his coat off and hangs it on these things. As long as it's done realistically, as long as it's not played for laughs. One, he goes to the warlord to steal the thing. That makes sense. It makes sense that the warlord would have made copies. How did they get the top section? What if it's metal and flat and in the fight it rolls across the floor? One guy sees it and goes for it. What if it rolls across the floor and into a fire and the fire sort of burns past it? It's sitting there smoldering. One of the guys sees it and goes over and grabs it and then screams. That guy runs off. Back here, he says they had a copy of one part, but how did they get the other? A man burned it into his hand. It was just a rough copy. It wouldn't give them any of the information like the false number. They'd have to hold up a mirror so they could read his hand. I like the fact that when they get to Cairo, the digger says, and you think that he's going to have the stuff, but it's a big shock to Indy when he finds out that they found the temple. How could they have done it? The Chinese man had a copy of the thing, and one of their SS men had the top part burned into his hand. But not the number. Does that solve it for you, Larry? I love it. And at the time, it's just like a joke, the guy burning his hand. You don't even suspect that it could be any kind of plot point. And then we have the scene with the villains. And they're having their problems. They could also be trying to get the pendant. They know that their information may be faulty and they want the real thing. There are a lot of things they want out of her. And then we cut back to Indy. How far down are they digging? About the depth of this room? Yeah, with four Arabs and digging in Indy, it would take them a day. We could do a time transition there anyway. We can cut to them digging towards sunset, then cut to the girl in the tent at night, and then you cut and it's the next day. Maybe the action, when they throw him back in there, can take place at night. It's better to have the contrast. It's good for her at night. The guys come back from the digs, and it's a perfect time for them to torture her. Then you cut, and it's the next morning, and the Germans are coming out. Then you cut to Indy, and they're still digging away, and they say, we've got it. They open it up, and he goes down. We have a little scene where they're looking around, and he sees the big box at the end of the temple. There's that moment. There it is. And this tomb is going to be pretty good. I know what it looks like. It's not a small tomb. The ceiling is about 40 feet in the air. It has all sorts of hieroglyphics and things. He goes into the tomb, sees the thing. And they start hauling it out, hoisting it up, and he's still down in the thing. Great. Send the thing down. Or or whatever. And a German appears. So he never comes out. No, and he sort of supervises the moving of the ark. So he's down there when it goes up, and then he would go up after. Now the Frenchman appears. Right. And he goes, ah, Indiana. And Indiana says, throw me down that so-and-so. Someone throws it down. Indiana catches it and looks up to say thank you. And the Frenchman has thrown it to him. So it's a real surprise to us. And then maybe we have a short scene between the Frenchman and Indy. After all these years, you've made my life so much easier. Two villains having a conversation. Indiana should be able to match him in wit and intelligence and everything they say to each other. This is where we get into the trouble with the water, if we're going to do that. We might as well figure that out. This is where he would say... 
he would say things like, I've seen you do the impossible, and there's one thing you can't do, and that's breathe underwater. Slam. Do we need any explanation about how they're getting the water in there? I worry about this scene a little bit. We're going to get in such a fix trying to explain the why and the how. It's not indigenous to the situation. You could explain it. They have a conversation, and the Frenchman says, you know so much about this thing. I suppose you know about the defense system. Discovered in our diggings down the street. An offshoot from the Nile. Another thing, it could be the defense of the temple like we saw in the beginning of the movie. This would really telegraph it when he goes into the temple. They open it up. On the other side of it could be a hatch thing. Or on either side would be these giant cisterns of water that would be stored there from an oasis. They're constantly filling up. When you're in the temple, it's all dripping wet. That would be good. He goes into a sand temple and there's moss on the walls. That would be really strange. There's like a giant water well in the middle of the temple. It's like the temple where all the water was, which would be the key temple, the source of life. It's the source of life and the source of water. It would be like an artesian well. So the water comes up. From the bottom. You like it to splash. The fact that it just sort of seeps up. A geyser of water. I'm not seeing what you're talking about. What would it look like? The idea would be that there's sort of an artesian well or sort of a cistern so that he goes past it. It would be like there are two levels and he goes into one level and there's this giant artesian well, water pouring out of old fountains. There's a hole in the thing, so he continues to go down to the next level. It's nice to have it be a surprise, but the surprise may be so great that it's unbelievable. You're never going to convince anybody that there's water in the desert. I think there's a better way to telegraph it to explain the water before you actually use the trick. One way he could get out. Now, it's hard to explain, but as he's going up with the water, he passes a whole bunch of hieroglyphics on the wall. Translated, they say, exit, press here. He discovers another room the hieroglyphics are telling him about. There's a way out of here. It's hard getting him out of this one. It's hard getting him out, and it's also hard getting him in. We should ask ourselves if this is really what we want to do here. Do we want to close him in the temple, lock the door, and then have something else happen to Why him? Why can't they close him in the temple and lock the door? And he sits down thinking about what he's going to do, because there's no way out. And all of a sudden, you hear strange animal sounds. The Germans have put some kind of man-eating animal in there to get him, like maybe uh, a couple of lions or tigers. He hears this growling that gets louder and louder. He goes around this corner, and you realize a chute put these horrible animals in there, and they're starving. He realizes that however those animals got in, that's the way out. But the animals are trying to get him, and all he has is this bullwhip and maybe some clever devices hidden under his clothes. We'll do an animal fight. He works his way to this little chute where the animals come out. Somehow he gets out that way, but I don't know how. One of the first suggestions that you made, replacing the water with sand might be of interest. It's like Land of the Pharaohs, where they had giant sand chutes. There would be giant sand chutes to protect the temple. Not only does he close the door, he says, this is your last hurrah. If you don't die of starvation, the temple's defense mechanism will get you. Wham! He pushes the lever and all of a sudden these old stones fall away and suddenly sand starts pouring in on him from four directions. He's sort of fighting to keep above the sand that's filling up the room. It would be more dynamic than quicksand where you sink slowly. He'd be almost buried by all this sand, so he's constantly trying to climb out of it. Then the issue would be the sand could fill up to the point where the thing collapsed. Assume the floor of the temple is really the second story. There's another floor below it. When the sand comes in, the floor falls through into the next level. As he's climbing, you hear creaking. You get a shot of him falling through the sand. He lands in the sand at the bottom of another temple, but there are doors. You can have him walk through the buried city. 
Then he finds another digging and gets himself out. It's so convenient. The circumstances have permitted him to get out of this one. You could do the same thing with water. Or he sees some water being channeled, a little stream going out a crack. He realizes it's a loose rock, and he can get out that way. It just seems convenient for the sand to be too heavy with the way those temples are constructed. Suppose he's just in the temple and they lock the door. What if the temple had other doors? He came in from the roof anyway. He can't get the door open, so what he does is there's like a giant column or something. He starts chipping away at the column, cutting it down like a tree. He finally gets the column so it falls over and crashes through the door and opens it up. Then he climbs through. I like the idea of him climbing through the underground city. Then he finds an exit. The idea of Nazis putting tigers in there. You know what it's like to fly a tiger in from South Africa? It would have to be a neighborhood tiger. There weren't any tigers out there. I'm not in love with the idea. You can have bats and stuff. Make it slightly spooky. I like the idea of, okay, while the water's rising, he climbs up onto the moss of the, on the rocks. He sees a column which is weak. He finds a rock and pulls it out of the wall. He begins pounding away at the column as the water is rising. His hands are all bloody. He's able to loosen the column so that it falls through a wall or through a door. And then all the water rushes through? And he swims out with the water. And it's a waterfall. Only problem with the water is it's going to be hard to do and it's going to be hard to rationalize it. We can't. We can call it the Temple of Life and establish that it has water in it. But at the same time, it's like the sand. Plus, it's such a classic thing. Okay, what about snakes? All these snakes come out. People hate snakes. Possibly when he gets down there in the first place. Asps? They're too small. It's like hundreds of thousands of snakes. When he first jumps down into the hole, it's a giant snake pit. It's going to detract from the... Well, this is interesting. It's going to detract from the discovery of the Ark, but that's all right. We can't make a big deal out of the Ark. He opens a thing and he starts to jump down and it's full of snakes. Thousands of them. He looks down there and sees them. What if they scurry out of the light? Then when he says they're afraid of light, they throw down the torches. You have a whole bunch of torches that keep the snakes back. Then he gets the thing and they take it out. And the guy says, now you will die, my friend. Clunk. At the clunk, three of the remaining four torches go out. So he only has one more torch and the snakes start coming in. He sits there with one torch, knowing that when the torch goes out, it's the idea of being in a room in a black room with lots of snakes. That would be really scary. Okay, the snakes are waiting, looking at him. Thousands. And the torches are burning down. He's trying to keep it going. The torch goes out. The whole screen goes black. The sound of the snakes becomes more intense. You hear him backing up. The camera pans and suddenly you see it's black. But there's light coming from several cracks. It's not completely black. That leads him to an opening, to a rock that isn't so flush against the other rocks. He knows there's access. He keeps pushing on it. He gets a little more room. What are the snakes doing? The snakes are coming at him, but the darkness gives him his way out, the clue of the way to go. If he was there with one torch, he'd see that. It's pretty dark. I like the idea of he's got the last torch or maybe the last two torches, depending on how long we want to play this out. Say there's 35 torches. This will be a nice scene when we go to get the Ark and there's like a landing strip of torches. It's getting very smoky in there. They close the door and almost all of them go out, except for maybe five or six. It's the only thing that's keeping him from the snakes. He looks around and tries to figure a way out. He sort of sees that there is a door that's locked. Maybe he takes one of the torches and moves it towards the door and bangs on it. Can't get it open. There is a big column. 
What if he takes, during this whole thing, the torches keep going out every minute or so. Now he only has two torches, so you know he's getting really desperate. He works his way over to the column and shimmies up. As he goes up, he drops one of the torches and it bounces down. He only has one left. The snakes are sort of winding their way up the column. Suddenly, a bat comes flying out. He drops a torch or he takes the torch and sort of pushes it behind the column and snakes slither out. He starts pushing between the wall and the column. Finally, this torch goes out. It's only just a glow around his face. He's sweating and straining. Shots of snakes slithering towards him. He finally pushes it and the column goes crashing down. We could have a couple of crashes from above. Obviously, it's very thick. Column knocks out a portion of the wall next to the door. It would be great if he was just left hanging there. It breaks open the door. Now he has to get over to the door. I think we're going to have to leave him with one torch. I don't want to get into a whole long thing. He's up there. He has one torch left. He dropped the other one. He's holding it in his teeth and it begins to go out. There are little shafts of light coming through, so it's not pitch black. He knocks the column over. It goes crashing down, knocks a door open in the far side of the temple. He's left hanging there, about to fall onto the thing of snakes. Maybe one snake slithers across his hand. He pulls himself up on the ridge, or he drops down to another ledge. He gets into a position away from the snakes. He stands there and lights his torch again. He has matches. He didn't do it before because he was in the middle of pushing the column. He gets the torch going again, and he starts walking through the temple with the torch. We have to have a torch. I think it should end quickly. The minute the column falls and breaks down the door, I think he should ride the column down and get out right away. That's the end of the scene. He has to ride it as it falls. He goes down on the column, does a tumble, and runs out. The trouble is you're going to have to have him go through those temples without any light. The column falls down, breaks through a wall, and light comes pouring in. It's like salvation. I don't think there should be a door down there. He sees it's weaker there. Let's just make it a wall. Since he's an archaeologist, he knows how it is. If that's dark, we don't need any snakes. You're using shafts of light so you can see the snakes on the edge of the light. The way to do it is like squirm. It has more worms than you can imagine. Snakes are ugly when they're all piled up with each other. I wonder what their reaction to light is. You can get a snake charmer or something. I don't know how you'll do it. All you need is a lot of snakes in a very small spot, so it looks like there's a lot of snakes everywhere. You can also do it with sound and close shots of snakes slithering across hands. What's real scary to me is when that rock comes down to seal the temple, the air pressure blows half the torches out. The place is airtight. A visual effect and a sound effect. We shouldn't have any snakes in the opening sequence. Just tarantulas. Save the snakes for now. It would be funny if somewhere early in the movie he somehow implies that he was not afraid of snakes. Later you realize that it is one of his big fears. Maybe it's better if you see early, maybe in the beginning that he's afraid. Oh God, I hate those snakes. It would be slightly amusing that he hates snakes and then he opens this up. I can't go down there. Why'd it have to be snakes? Anything but snakes. You can play it for comedy. The one thing that could happen is that he gets trapped with all these snakes. Another thing that would be interesting for complete abject terror, as you see these thousands of snakes, you cut to macro insert shots. Snakes laying eggs, little snakes hatching, two snakes eating each other. All this propagation is going on inside this huge tomb. The other thing you have here, he's trying to push the thing away. He's pushing the column and a snake comes down and crawls up his arm. In the temple next door, there's a little bit more light, but not flooding light. And maybe in the next temple, it's like a tomb. And there's all this embalmed stuff, a little spook house stuff. Not a lot, five or six shots. Maybe it's like a one-minute sequence where he goes through all this stuff. 
Maybe little tiny mice climbing around on the corpses. Rats. Can we use the bat in the first scene since we've taken away the snakes? Okay. There can't be too much light because they've been digging in the middle of sand dunes. All the light would come from above. Is there anything he could light? Like rags or something? He has torches there. It would just be a matter of relighting them. Walking through these catacombs, you don't see the dead people until the light hits them. If he reaches into his pocket and lights the torch again, that hurts it for me. He always had that capability. Or we just don't let the last torch go out. He jumps down with the torch. I think it would be good if it were almost gone and he brings it back to life. He's blowing on it and he gets a burst of light. He's in the catacombs and the bodies are piled like cord wood. Bodies and skulls and things. He walks to the tomb and then you cut outside. This is the point where we have a choice of doing things. Does he go back and get the girl? Depends on how quickly you do this. He goes through the catacombs. He sees the light at the end of the tunnel. He pokes his head up and the Germans are out there. Cut to the Germans on the airstrip. Flying wing comes in, taxis around. Is the airstrip revealed? That's what we'll have to decide. Of course, how would they have time to build it? Why would they? It's probably just landing on the flat desert floor. Anyway, the wing lands and taxis around. Germans are going to load the Ark onto the plane. One of the things he wants to do is take control of the airplane. He'll hijack it. A lot of the wings are like little fighter planes, a tiny cockpit with two guys in it. Ooh, that's even better. All you need is him poking his head out of the temple and seeing all the Germans. Then you cut to the wing landing. I want a great shot of the wing flying. The wing could land, taxi to one of the buildings and say, fills us up with gas. We have a precious cargo to load. They're loading the wing with gas and he goes and gets in a fight with the guys. He can get in a fight with the pilot and a couple other guys. He beats them all up. In the process of beating them up, the plane gets loose and crashes into something. It crashes into the gas pumps and it creates a fire. And, and then the wing burns up. A giant explosion. That's good because the arc isn't in the wing. They haven't even loaded it yet. They say, get this thing gassed in a hurry. Don't shut the engines off because we have precious cargo and it has to get out of there right away. The guy starts to go to the pump and you pan over and there's Indy. He jumps the guy and the thing blows up. There's a big fight first. Then the wing starts breaking loose. You see the wing hit the gas pump. Then you cut to the Germans. You see a giant fireball behind the tents. That way we don't have to show the plane blowing up. Then everybody runs over there. They're running around and yelling and going crazy. Get the truck to Cairo. Get it to the main airport. We'll put it on one of our fighter planes. Then you see Indy scrambling along, black face and torn jacket. Sabu is in the tent with the girl, tied up. We'll just do away with his two helpers. We can play this along a bit more if we want. He looks out of the temple. And that's where we should end. That is a good spot to end it. <laughs>